I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Great. Um, thanks for coming, everyone. Um, I always feel like this side of the room, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to feel like I'm ignoring this side of the room. But I think Chloe can kind of see all of you, and yeah. that's who we're really I'll here for. Um, so hopefully it will kind of work out all right. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm Juliet Jakes. Um, Chloe is a dear friend of mine. Um, we, as Claire said, launched my book here um, three and a half years ago. Uh, we were recently in a film together called Female Human Animal, uh, in which that book launch was, um, was part of the, the film, um, which I can assure you happened organically. Um, <laughs> we uh, have also recently done a radio show together about Leonora Carrington, so this is yet another um, kind of friendship professional um, uh, event we've done together, so it's nice to share it all with you. Um, some of you may know um, Sea Monsters is... Chloe's third novel. Um, the previous two, uh, Book of Clouds, came out in 2009 mm-hmm. and Asunder in 2013. Uh, I really recommend uh, both of those and the new one. Um, the plot of Sea Monsters is um, a narrative told by uh, Luisa, who is a 17-year-old woman in Mexico City in uh, 1988, three years after the, um, the earthquake that devastated the city. Um, like the characters in Chloe's previous novels, Louisa is something of a dreamer and a daydreamer. Um, she often kind of escapes into fantasy. Um, in particular, uh, Louisa has a kind of love of um, like British kind of pop music, like Joy Division, The Cure, and Susie and the Banshees, and we're going to get onto all of that later. Um, and also a kind of passion for like French kind of symbolist poetry and proto-surrealist writing. Um, and, you know, these, these flights of fantasy and fantasy set her apart from her peers. Her peers, um, her classmates at school, you know, their parents are kind of politicians, industrialists, um, children of, like, Americans working for these big multinational corporations in Mexico City. Um, so being surrounded by such people, Louisa finds teenage life a bit of a bore and a bit of a trial at times, didn't we all? Um, so, you know, a lot of her life is going to these kind of parties that are quite boring, um, being surrounded by people who are made more boring by drugs. Um, 
going to uh, these kind of sleazy bars where women get in for free but are expected to um, yield to kind of male attention and entitlement that comes with that. Um, and the plot turns on her um, meeting a 19-year-old boy called Tomas Roman. Uh, they travel together um, to a place called Zipolita in, uh, in Mexico in the coastal state of Oaxaca uh, to search for these 12 Ukrainian dwarves who have escaped uh, their ringmaster while their circus has been on tour, on tour in Mexico. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of inciting incident of the book. Um, I think this might be a nice place, Chloe, for you to, um, to read a, a bit of the opening and then we can talk about some of the... Um, some of the themes and the characters in the, in the novel. <clears throat> imprisoned on this island, I would say, imprisoned on this island, and yet I was no prisoner and this was no island. During the day I'd roam the shore aimlessly, purposefully, and in search of digressions. The dogs, a hut, boulders, nude tourists, scantily clad ones, palm trees, balapas, sand-sifting umber and adrenaline, the waves upward grasp, a boat in the distance, its throat flashing in the sun. The ancient Greeks created stories out of a simple juxtaposition of natural features, my father once told me, investing rocks and caves with meaning. But there in Sipolite, I do not expect any myths to be born. Sipolite. People said the name meant beach of the dead, though the reason for this was debated. Was it because of the number of visitors who met their end in the treacherous currents? or because the native Sapotex would bring their dead from afar to bury in its sands. Beach of the Dead, it had an ancient ring, ancestral, commanding both dread and respect, and after hearing about the unfortunate souls who each year got caught in the riptide, I decided I would never go in beyond where I could stand. Others said Sipolite meant lugar de caracoles, place of seashells, an attractive thought since spirals are such neat arrangements of space and time. And what are beaches if not a conversation between the elements, a constant movement inward and outward? My favorite explanation, which only one person put forward, was that Sipolite was a corruption of the word sopilote, and that every night a black vulture would envelop <clears throat> the beach in its dark wings and feed on whatever the waves tossed up. It's easier to reconcile yourself with sunny places if you can imagine their nocturnal counterpart. Once dusk had fallen, I would head to the bar and spend hours under its thatched universe, a large palapa on the shores of the Pacific, decked with stools, tables, and miniature palm trees. It was where all boats came to dock and refuel, syrup added to cocktails for maximum effect, and, and I would imagine that everything there was as artificial as the electric blue drink, that the miniature palm trees grew fake after dusk, the chlorophyll struggling and the life force gone from the green, that the wooden stools had turned to laminate. Sometimes the hanging lamps would be dimmed and the music amplified, a cue for the drunks and half-drunks to clamber onto the tables and start dancing. The shoreline ran through every face, destroying some, enhancing others. And at moments when I'd had enough reminders of humanity, I would look around for the dogs, who, like everyone else at the beach, came and went according to mood. A curious snout or a pair of gleaming eyes would appear on the fringes of the palapa, taking the scene, and then, most often, finding nothing of interest, retire once more into darkness. Before long, it became apparent that the bar in Sipolite was a meeting place for fabulists, and everyone seemed to concoct a tale as the night wore on. <clears throat> One girl, a sculptor with cartoon lips and squinty eyes, 
said her boyfriend had suffered a heart attack on his yacht and been forced to drop her off at the nearest port since his wife was about to be helicoptered in with the doctor. In more collected tones, a tall German explained to everyone that he was a representative of the German Society for Protection Against Superstition, or Deutsche Gesellschaft Schutz vor Aberglauben. He wrote the name in tiny script, German script on a sheet of rolling paper for us to read, and had been sent to Mexico after a stint in Italy. An actress from Zacatecas no one had heard of insisted she was so famous that a theater, a planet, and a crater on Venus had been named after her. <laughs> and you, one of them, would ask, noticing how intently I listened, what brought you here? I'd run away, I told them. I'd run away from home. Are your parents evil? No, not at all. I'd run away with someone. And where was this someone? Good question. And who was this someone? An even better question. But that was only half the story. I'd also come because of the dwarves. However fantastical it now seemed, I was here with Tomas, a boy I hardly knew, in search of a troop of Ukrainian dwarves. I say boy, though he was 19 to my 17. And I say dwarves, though I'd yet to see them with my own eyes. In any case, if I stopped to think about it for more than a few seconds, the situation was almost entirely my fault. Calming thoughts were hard to come by. No calm, only numbness. As if stuck halfway through a dream, yet the realization didn't trouble me. Great. So I think that um, that sets up the uh, the theme and the plot of the novel really nicely. Um, something that really interested me reading this, having read your your previous two novels, is that in Book of Clouds, and I think particularly Asunder, um, the central character, uh, you know, really kind of struggles to break out of their kind of own reality and fears kind of breaking out of a kind of fairly boring situation. Um, Whereas, of course, here, um, kind of the opposite is happening. Yeah. Like Louisa, you know, at a very young age, is just kind of grabbing uh, life by the scruff of the neck and breaking out of her world on this, this strange whim of just wanting to trap down these Ukrainian dwarves for yeah. reasons that are not yet clear. Um, so maybe we could talk a bit about uh, the character of Louisa and like, how and why she differs from, yeah. from your previous protagonists. Mm-hmm. Well, I, well, first of all, this, <clears throat> this main episode of Running Away is based on... Uh, something I did when I was an adolescent. And in that case, the boy I liked at the time was the one to ask me. But from the very beginning, when I started writing this, I knew that my character, I wanted to have a much greater agency, sense of agency. And um, looking back on my previous two novels, only really looking, well, the second one I was aware that the museum guard that was sort of her fight against her own passivity in her profession and then beyond. But... um, from the very beginning, I knew that I wanted this character to actually be the one to set everything in motion and um, to not just remain in this realm of fantasy and daydream for too long. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, obviously the world of like, fantasy and daydream, um, you know, in teenage years, you know, that's often something that you can like, project onto uh, a love interest and uh, you know, the character of Tomas Roman um, in this novel... Um, I think lots of uh, lots of people here will, will sort of recognise the the scenes where um, where Louisa is just writing Thomas Roman's name all over her school books and putting his initials on everything, um, and then of course you know goes away with him. But her her kind of idea of of Thomas kind of gradually shifts. So I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit more about um, 
sort of Louisa's relationship with Thomas in the novel and how that kind of structures the story. Um, well, I knew I, I definitely did, I wasn't interested in writing any sort of love story, uh, nor necessarily an anti-love story, but definitely the main theme was always going to be disenchantment. And because he appears outside of school and outside of uh, the places she would go at night, um, he emerges from almost well, what seemed to be ruins. Well, first, well, different coordinates in her life. First the fountain and then some ruins. But um, um, I wanted him to remain a somewhat shadowy character. But at that age, uh, one's desire is so mobile and attaches itself constantly to new, pe- new subjects. And one's just redrafting the fantasy over and over again. So, uh, so first him and then... Uh, and of course he is based loosely on the person I did run away with, but uh, not entirely. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I hope um, he never sees the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, um, uh, you know, people who, who may read the book, of course, are your parents. Um, and, uh, you know, Louisa's parents in the book um, are a really interesting presence, I think. Um, in what? Uh, in the book, Louisa's parents are a really interesting uh, presence. Oh, oh presence. Um, you know, because the the way Louisa's kind of wanting life to be kind of exciting and to be like her fantasies and be like her daydreams uh, contrasts quite notably with this kind of adult world of, of, you know, just having to just be concerned with the realities of life. Um, you know, there's a, a quite... Um, uh, noteworthy scene, I think, where Louisa's father... You know, as a writer, and there's some building work going on nearby, and the building work is going to, uh, you know, make lots of noise, make it hard for him to write, to create his own kind of dreams and fantasies. Mm. Um, but maybe we could talk a bit about how, you know, Louisa is in her kind of late teens. Um, you know, this is the last time when you can really kind of, I think, live primarily through these kind of daydreams and fantasies, and mm. how that contrasts with this kind of adult world that she's surrounded by. Mm. Yeah, well, actually, I'd forgotten, because um, you mentioned that the construction site next door, because I sort of think it was a metaphor as well, adolescence is sort of self under construction or, you know, and, uh, an antechamber to what one, adulthood. But also the idea of, um, of one's imaginary and how those years, what feeds into one's imaginary creates it, whether it's music or what one's reading or the people at the time. Somehow they leave an imprint which. Uh, I think it's for all of us, you know, or, uh, I know deeply for myself and I know for you too. Um, and so I think I wanted very much to acknowledge that. So the construction site was just sort of a metaphor, it's this messy construction. But yeah, the father's a classics professor. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the, the father uh, at one point in the book quite early on, um, you know, obviously the, the title of the book is Sea Monsters. Um, a lot of the book takes place by the beach, um, kind of marine life mm. and the sea. Um, you know, very much the the kind of the surroundings of, of the novel. Um, I want to talk about this this phrase, the aquarium of the dream, um, because it sort of it hints at the influence of kind of surrealism on the book. I think of things like kind of early cinema that you're you're quite interested in, and kind of uh, moving images. Uh, but also the influence of someone like Leonora Carrington, who we've talked about before, the 
poet and um, the short story writer and artist who was based in Mexico, and I know you were, you were friends with her. Um, but this influence of surrealism on the novel, these sort of fantastical elements, and also this kind of coming-of-age genre all meet in really interesting ways. And I wondered if you would, um, would like to talk a bit more about that, that surrealistic mm. feel to the novel. Well, uh, Lenora, I want to say she was an influence on this book directly at least, but of course she's, she makes a, an appearance in it, not by name, but when I mentioned the two old, the old emigres walking down the street in that early scene. So she's uh, hovering there somewhere. But um, the book that my narrator takes to the beach, and the one I really did take to Oaxaca, was the Lotramont, the Maldor, the Chant Maldor. So... Um, sort of, well, Can we talk a bit more about uh, Lothriamon for anyone who's not familiar with, with him? Um, Isidore de Casse uh, was a uh, French writer. Um, he died at the age of 24, I think, mm-hmm. in 1970 during the, the siege during the Franco-Prussian War. And he wrote one novel, I think, Le Chant de Moldoror, which is this kind of proto-surrealist, like very kind of dreamlike novel. Mm. Um, the surrealist group in the 1920s were all kind of obsessed with him. He's a very enigmatic figure, wasn't he? There's only yeah. one photo of him, I think, <coughs> in existence. Yeah. Um, and he's very known for this image in Mulderor of um, an umbrella and a sewing machine together on an aesthetic table, which kind of... Um, the Surrealists love this kind of weird juxtaposition of everyday objects. Mm. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit more about, um, about why Louisa is, is kind of obsessed with Lautremont in particular. Why the... First of all, the, the savagery somehow of the the text and, and the she f- feel emboldened whenever she had it with her. And then also there's a certain hybridity. Lotremont, of course, he, he was, well, he grew up in Montevideo in Uruguay. His father worked in the French consulate. And then he returned to Paris, I think, when he was 13 and then went back and forth a few times. But the idea of, uh, again, like Leonora, but the other way around, but of um, between old world and new. And then he had many hybrids in the, in, in um and there's a scene, there's a passage that I love, which didn't make it into the book, but with a, of a hermaphrodite asleep in a, in a grove, and the solitude of the hermaphrodite, and one of its kind, and destined to be alone forever. And but somehow that book was extremely important to me. Uh, but also, yeah, that notion of hybridity that, of course, in Lenore's paintings uh, and yeah, sort of indeterminate uh, beings. Yeah, I mean, these sort of literary and kind of historical references, um, you know, kind of quite subtly come into the narrative and kind of form part of Louisa's um, imaginary, um, you know, kind of who she is as a, as a person, what she's interested in. Uh, I mean, one of the, um, the most immediate things, of course, um, in terms of the, the history in the book, um, is the, the huge, disastrous earthquake in Mexico City in 1985 that, I mean, killed about 20,000 people, I think. It was really really catastrophic. Um, but, you know, in, in the book for Louisa, this has kind of made a lot of the familiar world strange, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is part of the background of the book, and I'd like to just talk about that for a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, especially, I, she lives in the Colonia Roma, and that was a very hard-hit neighborhood, of the earthquake. And, um, and <coughs> just the, the, the city's topography changed from one day to the next, and whole built landmarks were ra- erased, like the hotel, Hotel Regis, and certain hotels and landmarks that were just part of daily life. Um, so for her, it was, well, for anyone living, especially if you were in that neighborhood, where for years afterwards, because it's not as if the rubble was clear from 
one month to the next. So um, everything was rearranged and, well, from anything rearranged, uh, I guess, new things surfaced. Yeah. Um, I mean, something else that, um, you know, is in the immediate uh, history that you kind of draw on for the novel is um, is the Ukrainian dwarves who are, I believe, also... No, no, you laugh like they, they were real as well, right? Yeah. Like, we can... Well, I, they're based on an article I saw in the paper. We found... <clears throat> it was quite extraordinary in one of the newspapers. I think it was Excelsior or Uno Mas Uno, an article about these 12, a troop of Ukrainian dwarves that had defected from a Soviet circus that had been touring Mexico. And to this day, we... Well, we went, my father and I actually went to the paper, to the archives a few years later, and there was no trace, no record, there was no follow-up of the story, and there hadn't even been a name attached to the article. So later we thought, well, maybe someone was having a laugh or I needed to fill a space. <laughs> but, but anyway, for years afterwards, we thought of the story, and so when I, even though um, it wasn't one of the reasons why I ran away, <clears throat> might have been a year or two, but <laughs> I just thought, well, how can I somehow... <laughs> <laughs> bring all these things together. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, the... And, and also because it gives rise, well, to my character, to rise to you know, visions of orphandom or freedom and sort of, sort of autonomy, even though my character doesn't have a... I mean, she's not in the hands of an evil ringmaster. I mean, she's, she gets along very well with her parents, but there's still something oppressive at home and, you know, this altered culture and... But, you know, the, for, for Louisa, uh, Europe and the Soviet Union um, are objects of fascination, obviously, at this time, kind of three years before the collapse of the USSR. It's still, you know, very difficult for outsiders to go and visit the USSR. Um, you know, it's this place that would have been presented uh, in the media as being kind of utterly other. Uh, but obviously there are um, very noteworthy connections with Mexico City because of the, uh, the Trotsky murder in <coughs> 1940 um, and because of the... Um, you know, long tradition of kind of leftism in uh, in Mexico City. I suppose there's the uh, disastrous attempts by Sergei Eisenstein to make a film in Mexico as well, or that doesn't come up in the book. That's just my no. thing. Um, but um, you know, there's there's a very um, very noteworthy scene where Louisa encounters a man who just really wants to talk to her about the USSR and about Trotsky and about the Chernobyl disaster, which is also quite recent, and also this kind of very mysterious and otherworldly thing. Um, I don't know if you've got anything to add add on that. Um, I found it interesting. <laughs> um, I, I actually spent a lot of time in Ukraine uh, last summer. Uh, I did see the circus, but I didn't see any dwarves. Um, I guess they're in Mexico. Um, but um, yeah, for Luisa, wasn't uh, well. Her interest wasn't uh, really overtly political in any way. But I think it was more well, very drawn to yeah. Well, her idea of, in her imagination, of a Soviet world, and and this closed world, and very enigmatic and foreign and impenetrable, and yet the dispatches from that world, the cosmonauts and the circus performers, and this defiance of gravity. And, well, that's you know. one of the things I really like about the novel. You know, the the politics and the history in the novel are not overt at all. They're kind of part of the texture. In some ways, they're quite hard to tell apart from the more kind of dreamlike or fantastical aspects of like Louisa's imagination. Um, or just her kind of world view, which isn't quite the same thing. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the use of politics in, in the novel, I think, is, is very subtle and very, um, very poetic. Um, you know, another thing that struck me on that theme is the kind of undercurrents of violence in the book. And again, they're 
they're very much kind of in the background. Um, but for example, the um, the apartment where like William Burroughs shot his shot and killed his wife as part of I think like some sort of failed kind of performance art project. A William Tell and yeah. reenactment. Yeah. Um, that was in Mexico City, and that becomes a source of fascination for tourists. So, of course, like Luisa and Tomas uh, visit there, and I wondered if you'd maybe like to talk about these undercurrents of violence and the, the Burroughs story specifically, mm. how they feature in the book. Well, I feel like there's always in Mexico, the, starting with the Aztecs and their gods, this undercurrent of violence. And just It's gone through so many incarnations. Now, a really horrific one but, but, um, with the drug cartels. But um, the... I wasn't planning on putting Burroughs in my book, but a few years ago, after Leonora, had, Leonora Carrington had died, my father and I went by her house because she died and she had a little white Maltese named Yeti. So we actually just rang the bell to see if Yeti was still there and who was looking after the dog after. And then the, someone answered. But anyway, and then my father, who had just been reading or had written something about Burroughs recently, um, said, oh, wait, around the corner, Monterrey number, I think, 122, that's the flat where he killed Joan Vollmer. So why don't we just go ring the bell and see what happens? So we went and rang the bell and were let in, and, and he began speaking to the, this couple who lived there. And I more or less um, recreate that scene. They, they actually reenacted the, you know, the, the, the husband and the wife stood and showed us where it had happened and the exact space between us. It was so bizarre. I thought, well, somehow I've to It's in La Roma. It was in the same neighborhood, and it was... But again, that sort of strange dance between between uh... quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Say an object of desire and then this violence one can feel towards them. I can't believe we've never spoken about that before. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, another, uh, not violence as such, but, you know, another um, another kind of interesting aspect of the book um, is Louisa's father having this kind of, um, this strong interest in, uh, in shipwrecks, which he kind of passes on to, on to Louisa, uh, and in particular the, um, the Antikythera mechanism uh, which, um, actually, maybe you should explain uh, the Antikythera mechanism to the, the audience because I, I know at different <laughs> points to, yeah. in the writing uh, this has been very important to, to you. And that was actually the title of the novel for several years, and then uh, my editor said, no, no, no one's, people can't pronounce your surname if you have that title. <laughs> so be like, double. So if you were like Chloe uh, Smith, then it would be fine. But, yeah. <laughs> or the Smith right. mechanism. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, so it was... Uh, it was a mechanism found in the Antikythera shipwreck that had laid 20 centuries underwater in the shipwreck. Uh, and it, they traced it to 79 B, uh, BC, I guess, and then it was found in 1900 or 1901. But anyway, it was, it's, it's by far the most sophisticated um, feat of ancient technology, and it's, they call it the first analog computer. It's made of bronze and um, 
all those fragments were compressed by the pressure of the water. But anyway, um, I just sort of play with, because of the presence of French symbolism in the book and then um, Baudelaire's poem, Voyage to Kithra, Antikythera becomes a sort of um, metaphor for romantic disenchantment, or the Antikythera mechanism and the mechanism set in motion. But, um, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, so Baudelaire, um, in the, the book, um, Louisa discovers uh, Baudelaire's poem through her um, literature teacher. Um, and that kind of leads her on to learning about the Antikythera mechanism and developing this interest in it. Um, you know, this kind of this French kind of 19th century symbolist poetry um, kind of crops up elsewhere in the book. Um, there's an epigram from uh, the poet Gérard de Naval, uh, and there's also an epigram from a Mexican poet, um, Xavier um, Villarutia, um, who was around in the first half of the 20th century. And I just wondered if you'd like to say anything about those epigrams and like why you chose them. And... I guess the first one, the Nerval, it's from a, a very famous sonnet he wrote called El Desdichado, which more or less means the unhappy one. And the, the epigraph is, uh, I've dreamt, no, I've... <coughs> I've, dr- I've dreamt in the grotto where the mermaids swam. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I've dreamt in the grotto where the mermaid swims. And then the second one by Javier Villarrutia. It's, it's a very famous <coughs> poem. Do you want a, um, a cough lozenge? Nocturno mar amargo, bitter nocturnal sea. But um, Villarrutia was very influenced by Nerval and wrote about him and um, his poem about... Bitter noct- uh, the bitter nocturnal sea is very much the sort of well, he, he was also he was gay and, and, and it's about this very tempestuous nocturnal love that doesn't really show its face a lot but he was also very influenced by the French symbolists and for him um, the Mexican Ocean in partic- the, and, and was, was very somber and mysterious but, um, but also just in general French symbolism I guess um, only over time have I realized that when I set out to write a book, I have a handful of themes I want to want to write about and explore. And the big challenge is always just creating some sort of metaphorical framework where they can all fit together and somehow have a conversation between them. So, um, so without even realizing, because I did my graduate studies in well, mostly on Baudelaire and then on Erval, uh, only now do I realize how they've influenced me. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the the novel has quite a kind of fragmentary form, um, you know, sort of paragraph after paragraph that are kind of detached from each other and play into each other in interesting kind of ways, um, which, you know, gives it a kind of quite dreamlike quality, a quite kind of sort of reflects the kind of transient nature of youthful experience as it's kind of, be, especially as it's kind of being recalled by somebody a bit older looking back. Um, you know, so that has a sort of poetic feel to it. But also there's a kind of musicality to it. And um, that's, that's a segue to the thing that I think we're both the most excited about talking about, which is the use of music in the book. Um, the, you know, as I said at the start, like the novel is set in 1988. Um, and so kind of pop music um, is a really important uh, part of Louisa's uh, world. Um, so as I said, you know, the kind of the, the people she's listening to and she's kind of excited and inspired by are kind of like Joy Division, The Cure, uh, Nick Cave, Susie and the Banshees. Um, Klaus Nomi. Klaus Nomi, who we will come back to in a moment. Um, 
you know, I think any novel that's set anywhere between like the 50s and the 90s, um, you know, often like some form of like kind of pop music or underground music uh, will be part of the sort of character's kind of world. Um, 1988, I think, is a particularly interesting time uh, because there were so many interesting kind of subcultures, you know, like Louisa could be into kind of like acid house or she could be into disco or she could be into like early kind of hip hop or kind of proto techno stuff. Uh, but she's into this kind of like this sort of this post-punk goth indie um, that you know I know both you and I were very keen on when we were we were teenagers. Um, but you know music that had made its way mostly from the UK to Mexico, uh, and maybe we could talk a bit about like how and why um, Louisa relates to that music and what it means to her. Um, well, I guess with goths. And well, so my sister and I would go to a, a gay goth club called El Nueve, and um, and well, it was very much the it was started by a French man, and for him, night he was seen as some sort of cultural enterprise. So it also had magazine launches and drag queen shows, and um, and the noches bugas were the straight nights where younger kids like us would go, would goth young goths would go, and. Um, and there was a certain theater to it, and um, it was quite performative, and also quite baroque. I just wrote an essay for you about the called the tensions of tension of transience, which is about um, what it was like to be a teen goth, and um, and they're just sort of this um, sense of the fugitive, but also uh, the baroque and our musical tastes and um, the way we dressed up at the time, and. Um, and they'd also play, the dance floor would always open with them playing Carmina Burana. That would then segue into the Sisters of Mercy, Lucretia's My Reflection, <laughs> which for some reason I know they're not very popular anymore, the Sisters of Mercy, but we love them in Mexico at the time. And I think the Cure is more popular in Mexico than almost anywhere else. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the Cure like, never, never failed to amaze me how big the Cure are, like pretty much everywhere. Um, I mean, partly because I grew up in the part of the country that the Cure are from. Um, and so, like, you know, when I first met Chloe, she was just like, wow, you're from the part of the country that the cure are from. What was that like? And it's like, well, there's a reason why they sound like that. I <laughs> um, was actually back there the other day and tried to go to the pub where the cure did their first gigs, and it was closed for, um, for refurbishment. So I don't think they're coming back anytime soon. But, um, yeah. Um, Should I read that scene? Yeah, let's, let's, have, um, let's have another scene from the book. Um, so if you want to like introduce this scene um, and then read it. <laughs> this is also um, based quite a bit on uh, well on a night out in Mexico. <clears throat> so it was so it's at the house of an, uh, uh, someone we didn't know very well. I've changed his name, but Diego Deán, punk rock singer, draftsman, and occasional shaman. A small gathering he'd called it, which it was in size but not tenor. Our festivities conducted under the gaze of his three iguanas, who blinked warily each time a new guest arrived. Diego had produced hundreds of sketches from all angles and perspectives of his companions, frontal, profile, rear. He drew their prehistoric eyes, their lazy lids, their heavy blinks. These sketches hung on the walls between the bookshelves, and it was hard to tell where his pride lay most, with the drawings or the pets. That night, the creatures had watched us from their enclosures, tall glass tanks that loomed over the furniture in the living room. Someone put on a Klaus Nomi record while a large spiral of white powder was prepared on the coffee table, cards angled left and right, creating whorls so thick it looked like the ghost of an ammonite, 
a logarithmic spiral like the ones from last year's geometry class. Once the spiral was completed, Diego rolled a 50 peso note into a cylinder and helped himself to approximately two centimeters of powder. After inhaling, he passed the note to the guy next to him, who repeated the action before passing it on. Eventually, the rolled-up banknote reached me, its paper warm from so many fingers, and what could I do but join in the ritual? The bold hum of voices, mostly male, rose and fell around me, everyone talking and thought-walking like Cantinflas, that's a famous Mexican comedian, their voices expansive, compulsive, filling every inch of air. And soon I too felt charged, charged and restive and impervious to everything, and after two lines I rose from the sofa and marched over to one of the iguana tanks and stuck in my arm. But scarcely had my fingers touched the top of a scaly head than Diego rushed over and yanked my sleeve, saying I'd clearly never experienced the dinosaur teeth or dinosaur scratch or dorsal thwack of their tails, not to mention one should never approach an iguana from above, only from the side, otherwise they think they're under attack. And furthermore, it takes years to gain an iguana's trust, he said with pride as the creature looked up at us with an indifferent eye. Diego returned to the table, circling the spiral like a sinister jester. Someone turned up Klaus Nomi, and for a m- moment, the living room was transformed into an opera set, and in my mind, Diego ne- Deanne and Klaus Nomi became one. Diego could be Nomi without the makeup, it occurred to me. They had the same arched eyebrows and beaky nose and rosebud mouth. Then again, Nomi had recently died of AIDS in solitary conditions in New York, I remembered reading. People too scared of the new disease to even visit. Dark, dark thoughts began to wash over me, the shadow side of drugs which was why I didn't venture there often, and I tried to sink into the sofa despite being too wired to properly sink, observing the dwindling spiral as every few minutes another whorl vanished, every guess part of the anti-helical helical operation that slowed down as we neared the center. I'd been thinking of getting up and checking on the guanas when the doorbell rang, announcing the after-hours gang. They were like astronomers. Night was never long or black enough. First there was Seda, who with his 1940s suit and ruddy cheeks and greased back hair reminded me of a wind-up doll, and his sidekick El Chino, who lived with his pet canary, Juan El Ciego, blind since birth, for whom he fashioned nests out of discarded shoulder pads. And El, Ch- El Chino's old girlfriend, older girlfriend, Lorita, a tense woman in a purple jacket who had a habit of finishing other people's sentences. And last, El Pitufo, a coke dealer who wrote poetry, People listened to him recite his latest poems in exchange for free samples, and the more they consumed, the better his poetry sounded to their ears. (laughs) He longed to be taken seriously, but when people saw him, all they could think of was fine white lines. Another spiral quickly formed on the coffee table, cast forth from a folded white envelope rather than any mystery of torsion. El Chino replaced Nomi with Bauhaus, then Japan. The spiral changed shape, everyone spoke at once, and whenever someone approached the table, the others followed their movements with dilated pupils, rarely a pause between beers, words, or cigarettes. And that night, I felt deliriously detached from it all. Detached, that is, until I began to worry about the iguanas. We were keeping them up. They looked increasingly vexed. I suggested we dim the lights and turn down the music, but no one, including myself, could be bothered to tend to either. And only when an iguana nodded off, its dropping lid shutting out our species for the night, did it occur to me to check my watch, which read 10 to 3, information that jolted me back to my senses. And I said goodnight to the sleeping creatures and left the others to their fine white lines while El Pitufa recited his. But once home, it was impossible to drift off. A white electricity ran through me, as if my system had been rewired by an evil technician. 
Only then, as I tossed and turned under my wool blanket, did I think of Tomas, amazed that I'd completely forgotten about his existence for nearly five hours. But now the technician had returned those thoughts and others to their casing. <laughs> right, we're going to go to audience questions in just a moment. But um, I just want to ask like one last thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've just talked about the... Um, the role of music, and particularly kind of British kind of alternative music, to the book. And uh, when you told me that the um, the book was going to be called Sea Monsters, um, I wondered if this was a reference to the uh, Wedding Present <laughs> album. Uh, but that's from 1991, and um, I don't think the Wedding Present do come up anywhere in the book. Um, yeah. But we could could we just um, could I just ask you like why you why you chose the title Sea Monsters? You know, it's quite a complex and um, you know, multi kind of faceted narrative. So why why that title? My guess, after I realized I couldn't use the antikythera mechanism, I thought I should. I was searching for something that could be both playful and mysterious. And I've always loved sea monsters on old maps, on medieval and early Renaissance maps, and um, the sort of just dis- uh, these weird disruptions and and and, and just reminders that nothing is ever you know, mappable or really knowable. And so I, yeah. Um, That's the main reason. I love sea monsters and old maps. Cool. Well, that feels like a nice place to um, open it up to the audience. I think we've got a roving mic. Yeah, it's already started roving. Um, (laughs) Like, put your hands up. And um, uh, yeah, question at the front. When you were sort of using your own teenage self as a resource, did you just um, rest in memory so you could stay in that time, or did you go searching back through the current present-day streets and, and locations in order to jog your memory? That's a good question. I actually... Um, it really felt at times I was writing historical fiction because this is several decades ago, and Mexico City has changed so, so much that I did go back to the romantic pictures and wander, and then I began to feel like I was writing over all my earlier impressions and memories of, of the places. So I stopped, and I, I relied almost entirely on memory and diaries. And my sister has a prodigious memory, so conversations with my sister, and and then just inventing. What what was quite difficult with this book is just feeling very free with autobiographical material and be able and just reminding myself I could do whatever I wanted with it, and I wasn't betraying any past by inventing and and distancing myself from my own, so. Okay, um, any other questions? Yeah, over here. Chloe, um, I, I love many of the writers and bands that you were talking about, but one of the things that occurred to me listening to you was that they, as writers, are so excessive and emotionally overwrought, and they spill over the page. Um, Nerval and Baudelaire and The Cure and listening to you reading your prose is so clean and precise and also quite laconic and I was wondering how conscious you are of that contrast between the people that inspire you and your own sensibility and and if you could just speak to that but Um, I guess well thank you I guess it's just um the search for the right form, and even though I'm very interested in, uh, in the Baroque and, and manifestations of the Baroque in Mexico, and both um, the art that emerged from the conquest, but actually in current manifestations also. But 
I, I did have, I just chisel away for years until I end up with a form I'm happy with. And, um, and I guess that is that, that attraction towards um, more over-the-top um, characters and forms of expression that uh, contrast so much with my own impulses sometimes. Um, any other questions? So we have one here. Thanks. Um, I noticed uh, reading. Sorry, your, can, uh, can we? Yeah. Oh, uh, I noticed um, reading your book, kind of about halfway through, that you, as far as I could work out, hadn't used a pronoun that necessarily told us the gender of the first person narrator, even though everything around it sort of colluded to make us think that's probably a girl, but that pronoun was missing. And uh, and uh, maybe in your other books too, you know, the characters are very sort of, in a way, incredibly heteronormative. And at the same time, there's this kind of fluidity or kind of absence of gender or something going on there. And I just wondered if you could comment on that. Well, it's something that, um, again, when we were talking earlier about hybrids, and uh, that uh, I've, when I set out to write, I, it doesn't even occur to me to define the narrator's gender and and then not entirely consciously, but I think I do try to preserve a certain ambiguity for as long as possible. It never seems at the forefront, it doesn't seem like the most important thing. Yeah, yeah once you get into that whole hornet's nest, you can spill a lot of words on it. So, um, <laughs> uh, any, any more questions? Um, uh, yeah, one here. I'm just um, thinking about, uh, just listening to you, not having read it yet, about how consciously you're thinking about time. Um, structurally, you know, because obviously you're, you're uh, reapproaching memory. Uh, but when I think of it visually, I'm seeing almost like a clock of the lines of the, of the drugs, the, the uh, iguanas and the actual calling of time, the disruption, the rearrangement of the rupture of the earthquake, the tides of that liminal space of the water coming in and out and trying to sort of circle round and almost like some sort of fracking get it and we're talking about the cure something buried deep inside of me which is such a recurring theme in those sorts that sort of music of access accessing some sort of encrypted uh, sort of uh, loss or desiring you know and that th these are all sorts of ways of cracking it open you know um one of one of my interests in sh shipwrecks is or well or the, i should say the character's interest is uh the idea of decompression how history is decompressed from a shipwreck if it's found, <laughs> or maybe very slowly in other ways. But, um, and then I guess just how certain scenes or moments from one's past also become, or no, rather, one's own personal history is compressed into certain scenes or episodes sometimes, especially with me with this running away. So with the shipwreck, it is this decompression of... But also, the, in terms of the form of the book, I, um, I loop back and forth between city and beach, and I guess I sort of tried... Um, to recreate sort of tidal rhythms. Well, not really, but I like to think of it as, as, as to and fro. Yeah. Well, we've got time for just a couple more questions, I think. So if anyone else would like to, uh, to ask anything, please, you know. Well, you know what to do. Um, yeah, just there. I, th I think... Okay. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a purely temporal coincidence, but I, I couldn't avoid thinking about the context in which the book is set with Alfonso Cuadron's Roma with the film and how both are establishing a dialogue between the city and 
at the, a beach and in the intimacy of a, a family and non-family in the same moment. You know? And this led me to wonder how much writing this book led you to, to, to establish a relation with a Mexico City that was the Mexico City that existed and with its present condition and how this led you to, to reflect about yeah, the present of Mexico. I'm estranged because I didn't feel ready to write about Mexico until a few years ago. Oh, I was putting off. I knew I'd always return to this story or somehow <coughs> turn it into something more. But um, I've just, for so many years, I was more Eurocentric in my interests and my movements. Uh, um, but uh, Mexico has changed so tremendously since those years that there was a, a lot of nostalgia in writing this book. Um, yeah, it was strange. La Roma, I mean, the film Roma, I had no idea he was making it when I was writing the book. It was the same neighborhood. But um, I kept searching for landmarks in the film that would uh, distinguish the neighborhood. Okay, uh, we'll sort of look, look to wrap up, but uh, one more question? <coughs> Hi, Chloe. Um, I was going to ask, um, so following on, you... Your other books are The Exile, but this one is about your sort of home, but actually it's about leaving. Do you think you ever write a book about home <laughs> staying? No. Well, no, it's funny you mention it, because I, I later realized how many emigres are in this book, and, well, and then the dwarves on the run, and then, yeah. But even, well, Trotsky and, then the, and other um, appearances of the... Well, no, the answer is, well, I don't know, but maybe not. I mean, can I, can I ask, kind of, you know, now you've, now you've finished this novel, you've put it out into the world, do you, do you have any thoughts about what you might do next? Yes, I'm, I'm working now on, on yeah, two new books. One is, uh, I think I've told you, Moths and Magic Lanterns, and then the other is, uh, was actually set in Mexico, too. It's sort of a turn of the screw set in Mexico, based on a brother and sister I was friends with. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, there's things to look forward to, but like for now, um, please do like buy a copy of Sea Monsters. Uh, Chloe will sign it. Um, if you want to uh, buy a copy of my book, I will sign it. Or you can have a rare unsigned copy of Transfer uh, <laughs> Memoir. They'll probably go for more on eBay at this point. Um, but yeah, do stick around for a bit because we're going to be here. So um, yep. thanks for coming. Uh, thank, thank you. Thank you all for coming. Please come thank forward. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.